Just join me in a short prayer, would you? Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who brings forth steadfast love, righteousness and justice on the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That's our prayer this morning, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer this morning, Holy Spirit. That you would bring forth in us, as a people, as a body, and as individuals, those attributes of God in which God delights. So reveal to us now, Holy Spirit, the sacred page and bring out into the open from our hearts, Lord, what needs to come forth this morning that it might be touched, comforted, changed or transformed or done with whatever you see fit in the name of Jesus Amen <coughs> Hands up if you've ever read the book Danny the Champion of the World it's by Roald Dahl few people have read Danny the Champion of the World I like Danny the Champion of the World I use it in my therapeutic work with people all of the time one of the things I love about Danny the Champion of the World is that when he was very, very young, he realised that a <coughs> mouth smile without an eye smile is sure to be bogus. So the beautiful thing when I look out at my brothers and sisters this morning <laughs> is that I cannot tell what your mouths are doing, many of you, but I can see the love of Jesus in your eyes. And isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And Danny said... If you see a mouth smile, which we can't at the moment, without an, uh, uh, an eye smile, be careful. I love the book of Isaiah. Part of the reason why I love the book of Isaiah is this, is because there's 66 chapters in it, just like the 66 books in the Bible. And I love the fact that there's a very clear division, even though Jesus tells us it was only one Isaiah that wrote the whole of the 66 chapters, there's a very clear division between chapters 1 to 39 where you've got prophecies of judgment peppered with hope and the development of themes such as the seed of David, for example, such as the place of Zion or Jerusalem, for example, such as the importance of the Gentiles, for example, such as the fact that God will deal with every nation on this earth, for example. And such as, as we're going to come to today and on the 12th and on the 19th of September, the development of the theme of Emmanuel, God with us. And then suddenly, in Isaiah 40, and let's think, the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, is the 40th book of the Bible. God 
changes the tone still through the same man still through the prophet Isaiah and he says comfort ye comfort ye my people says your God so today and on the 12th and on the 19th we're going to bring a bit of a microscope to what I've just described in macrocosm the whole of the 66 chapters of Isaiah we're going to bring a microscope to chapters 7 to 12 of this glorious wonderful microcosm of scripture that we call the book of Isaiah and rightly so and we're going to look in chapters 7 to 12 of the emergence of this figure Emmanuel and we often do that at Christmas partially or rather more accurately during the season of Advent partially and it's right and proper that we should do that but part of the reason for doing it today is the emergence of the figure of Emmanuel happened in real circumstances and during real verifiable history with real encounters between people and today's encounter involves three human figures and or they're not actually in the physical scene that we're reading about today some world leaders that are threatening God's people Judah and the living God the covenant keeping God of Israel himself those are the characters those are the figures those are the players in today's encounter in Isaiah chapter 7 I've got five little sections for those of you that are having a bit difficulty breathing just keep smiling with your eyes and you'll be all right and we'll whiz through as quickly as we can though reverently these five sections that will unpack and unfold what's happening in this encounter in Isaiah 7 and then we'll draw some threads together first thread first little section nations in uproar we read verifiable history in the days of Ahaz the son of Jotham son of Uzziah king of Judah Rezin the king of Syria and Pekah the son of Ramalia the king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack against it this encounter and the emergence of Emmanuel God with us through God's lips, through the prophet Isaiah, took place at a real time in history when the nations were in uproar. In a nutshell, Judah, this tiny kingdom, the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were facing threat on every side. What's worse, they had a corrupt king, an unrighteous king, a wicked king, an evil king. More on him later. And the threats that they were immediately facing were Syria and the ten tribes of Israel had joined in league to come against Judah. The reason they joined in league to come against Judah, and you read all about this in Second Chronicles 28, if you want to. We're not going to turn there much today. And also in Second Kings 15 and 16. You can read about Pekah and you can read about Ahaz. They were coming against Judah because Judah had refused to join with them against the Assyrian threat in the north. And so the Assyrians had swept down from the north, from the Tigris and the Euphrates and beyond, and they had begun to chip away and chop away 
at the nations of Syria, Aram, and the nation of Israel, the ten tribe area. And all that was left of Israel, as is hinted at in this passage, where we get reference on God's lips through Isaiah to Ephraim, and Ephraim only, the strongest tribe of Israel. Assyria was wrecking, partitioning, annexing vast swathes of Israeli and Syrian territory. And they'd asked Judah for help, and Judah had said no, because Judah was secretly seeking to ally itself with Assyria under King Ahaz. And so they decide to punish Judah. And how bad this got is shown in 2 Chronicles 28, though we're not going to turn there just now, where 120,000 valiant warriors of Judah had been slaughtered by the ten tribes. That's what Ahaz was facing at this point in history when Isaiah 7 opens. And more than the 120,000 valiant, valiant warriors of Judah and Benjamin that Judah had lost, 200,000 people had been taken captive into the north by this confederacy, this league of Aram and Israel, and if it wasn't for the ministry of a prophet that we never hear of again in scripture, his name was Oded, O-D-E-D, those 200,000 Judeans would have become slaves to the northern kingdom. The nations were in an uproar. Judah was terrified. And all the time, Assyria was looming big and large, threatening to engulf all of these other nations. This was a time of tumult. I want to say a couple of things. God loves nations. We heard it in that beautiful ancient song, O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, desire of nations, and bind them together as one. We see it in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 when we've got the table of nations. God thought of nations. Think on that. God loves nations. And one thing we learn that God hates in scripture is humanistic globalism. It was humanistic globalism that led to the building of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And we all know what happened there, the confounding of the tongues and so on and so forth. And God still loathes globalistic humanism and I'll tell you why because God will unite all nations and people and tribes but they'll be united under Messiah they'll be united under the king of the Jews they'll be united under Jesus Christ and him crucified it is not for man to bring about global confederacy on this earth and God loves nations Second little piece about this passage. The action that we're about to unpack in a moment takes place at Judah's most vulnerable place. To be more specific, Jerusalem's most vulnerable place. Verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, 
you and Shia your son, Shia meaning a remnant shall return, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now the word highway gives us a clue there. It's outside the city walls. But this place was where the people of Jerusalem drew their water. But it was outside the city walls. And you know what? In peacetime, that's all right. But when you've just lost 120,000 valiant warriors and 200,000 people have been nearly taken into slavery in the north, but thanks to a prophet, they've come home, and the Assyrians are behind the Arameans and the Israelites. You worry about where you're going to get your water from. And I put to you that that's what King Ahaz was doing. He was looking at the city walls. He was looking at this vulnerable place and thinking, what am I going to do about this? Turn to Isaiah 36, verse 2. This is where the Assyrians come back, this time, to tell Hezekiah, Ahaz's son no less, what they were about to do to Judah. Look at where the Rabshakeh took up his position. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, this is Isaiah 6, verse 1, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood where? By the conduit of the upper pool on the highway in the washer's field. Precisely the place where several decades before Ahaz was thinking, what am I going to do about this? Hezekiah never forgot that. Turn, if you would, to 2 Kings, chapter 20, where the reign of Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, is summarized. Verse 20. The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? You see how strategic and important this vulnerable spot was. And you know what? If you're anything like me, you know that you have vulnerable spots. If you're anything like the Australian government today, or the Victorian government, or the New South Wales government, or the South Australian government, you know that you have vulnerable spots. And it is human, absolutely human and God-given human, to think to oneself, what are we going to do about this? And God sent his prophet and more specifically, his prophet's son, to meet Ahaz, to meet Jerusalem, to meet the whole of beleaguered Judah. Where? Not at their point of strength, but at their most vulnerable spot. Blessed be his glorious name. And he didn't just send Isaiah. He sent his son whose name was an enacted prophecy. Isn't that glorious? He sent his son to meet Ahaz where there was a breach, to bridge the gap between king and prophet, to speak truth, to speak God's counsel. Thinking to myself, why are you bending down a lot today? You can lift the microphone up. Then you won't get a bad back. See? 
my most vulnerable spot. He sent the boy. He sent the prophet's son to fill the breach. Third little section for today. Faith, not fear. Verse 2. We'll go back to verse 2. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. We know that one day the trees of the field are going to clap their hands. The trees of the field throughout scripture are often an image for the nations of the world. But here... The trees of Judah are quaking with fear. Verse 4. And say to him, this is God's word, in the breach, in the most vulnerable place, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smouldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Just note something there. Whenever God refers in this passage or anywhere else to Pekah, who was the second last, the penultimate king of Israel, he never ever uses his name. We're told his name, we're told his name in 2 Kings 15, but God never uses it. God always causes, calls Pekah the son of Ramalia. Now you can make of that what you want, but I want to say he knows us all by name. But some names he uses. And other names on this earth, he treats like Pekka. Not because he's a cruel or chastising or picky God, but because the fault is there, the stubbornness, the rebellion. And when you read about Pekka in Second Kings 15, you can see perhaps why God never uses his name. Notice something else in that little verse. No wonder Judah's frightened 120 valiant men 200,000 near slaves but what does God call them smouldering stumps of firebrands huh. on the 8th of May 1945 King George VI of England or Britain or the Commonwealth wrote a note in his diary 8th of May 1945, the week after Adolf Hitler had committed suicide, the day of Germany's unconditional surrender to the Allies, he wrote this, all of Parliament deferred to St. Margaret's Church, Westminster today to give humble and reverent thanksgiving to the living God for his deliverance. Did you hear those words? from King George VI's diary on the May the 8th, 1945. All of Parliament deferred to St. Margaret's Church, Westminster, to give humble and reverent thanks to the living God for his deliverance. Faith, not fear, is the order of the day. Verse 9. In the NIV, actually you like this bit because if you've still got your NIV, this is actually a verse where the NIV trumps other versions. Because in verse 8, we read in my version, which is the ESV, and many will be reading in the King James or the New King James today, for the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. 
There's an only in your version, if you're still reading from the NIV, I reckon. The head of Damascus is only resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of, or only, the son of Ramalia. And then we get this glorious, glorious verse. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. Or as the NIV puts it, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. If God's love for nations and God's hatred for globalistic humanism is revealed throughout Scripture, there's another theme revealed throughout Scripture, and that is the snare of fear, the danger of fear. Revelation, let's go there. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, just briefly. There are eight things listed in Revelation 21, verse 8, that see people thrown into the lake of fire. The last six are things that we can kind of look at and think, oh yeah, well I can see why you might throw people into the lake of fire for that reason. But you know what number one is? The law of primacy kicks in here. In other words, this one lets all the others in. It's fear. My version says, but as for the cowardly, yours might say, as for the fearful, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Martin Isles pointed out recently that when Australian newspapers start putting on their front pages, including on the internet, be afraid, in other words, be very afraid, something has got really out of whack. Someone is trying to intimidate the whole of this nation, and some would say the whole of this world, into fear. But those tea towels and things that people put in their kitchens keep calm and carry on. And they put them there because they were there in the Second World War. Huh? Keep calm and trust God, or rather, the other way around, trust God and keep calm. Because fear and faith cannot inhabit the same being. They can't. And we'll see more of that in a little while. Fourth little section. There isn't anything about which the living God doesn't know everything. Does that ring any bells for anyone? There isn't anything about which the living God doesn't know everything. And we're about to see here, or rather Ahaz the evil king is about to hear here, how the all-knowing God, the God of omniscience, knows absolutely everything. Verses 5 and 6, let's just see what happens here. When the evil king Ahaz is confronted with the covenant-keeping God of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. He said in verse 4, don't be frightened, Ahaz, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, now he's about to tell Ahaz the very words that Pekah, the son of Ramalia, and Rezin, the king of Aram, are saying to each other. Ahaz doesn't know this. But the all-knowing God knows this. 
Let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel. In other words, that they've got, they've got a puppet monarch that they want on the throne of Judah, presumably because he'll join with them against Assyria in the midst of it. So he's just told them, told Ahaz, the secret council that is coming between Pekah and Rezin. And then he tells him what the outcome's going to be. It shall not stand, verse 7, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. Now let's just pause there. That is the first prophetic event that Isaiah, throughout the book, refers to. Am I shouting too loudly, Ashley? Sorry. All right. Some people like it, some people don't. Some people are saying, like, shut up. Well, maybe not shut up, but just quiet down. I do apologize. I do apologize. There are seven prophetic events or prophetic, well, events that Isaiah prophesies about throughout this book. Number one, Israel is going to fall. Number two, the nation that's going to cause Israel to fall, Assyria, is going to fall next. Number three, Judah is going to fall and go into exile. Number four, the nation that God uses to bring Judah down and into exile, Babylon, is going to fall. Number five, the Messiah is going to be born. Incarnate. God incarnate. Number six, the Messiah is going to be crucified on a cross, Isaiah 53. And number seven, and brothers and sisters, this is still future for us. The Messiah is going to reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem, in what we know of today as the millennium. That's the breadth of Isaiah's prophecy. That's the breadth of what God put on this humble man. He only lived to see one of those events. That was the fall of Israel, as far as we know. But he faithfully proclaimed to Ahaz, to anyone that would listen, and not many did. And even to us, to this day, what was coming. Turn with me to First Peter. First Peter chapter 1 where this is alluded to. Peter says in verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 1 Concerning this salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Let that word sink in. They were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So maybe I can be forgiven for shouting because this excites me this humbles me this makes me want to worship the living God that there on the king's highway in the washer's field 
when God in his grace said to Ahaz what we're about to see in a moment that had relevance for today as we wait for and look for the seventh of these prophetic events that is to be fulfilled verse 10 again the Lord spoke to Ahaz ask a sign of the Lord your God let it be deep as shale or high as heaven but Ahaz said I will not ask he sounds very religious here and I will not put the Lord to the test ask a sign of the Lord your God let it be deep as shale or high as heaven who alone can make an offer like that yes the living God but also the creator of the heavens and the earth and only the creator of the heavens and the earth can make an offer like that now Ahaz is a wicked king as we'll see in a little while he shut the temple down at a time of national crisis and he took everything that was still left that was worth something from the temple and he gave it to the king of Assyria for help against Aram and Israel so yeah Aram and Israel after God had already told him what his view of Aram and Israel was and said trust me Ahaz let stubbornness arrogance fear get the better of him but the offer here is look I created Sheol ask a sign from Sheol and I'll give it to you ask a sign as high as the heavens and I'll give it to you only the creator of the universe could make a grace filled offer like that and why is that important today because our creator loves us because our creator created us fearfully and wonderfully made and it's not my role and it'll never be my role to give fellow brothers and sisters counsel and advice about whether they should take a vaccine or not Romans 14 applies there as far as I'm concerned 1859 a line was crossed when Charles Darwin wrote his origin of species or rather when it was published and ever since then there's been a chipping away at the revelation of God as creator and between 1954 and 1961 tell me actually if I start to get too loud here I won't be able to see your lips moving, mind you. <laughs> Between 1954 and 1961, Martin Lloyd-Jones and other evangelical leaders in Britain were invited by the British Council of Churches to meet with the Roman Catholics and the Methodists and everybody else to have these ecumenical meetings. And at meeting number 20 about church unity and the ecumenical movement, Martin Lloyd-Jones famously stood up and he said, I need to tell you that every single piece of my theology is based on the fact that Adam was a living, real 
historical human being. And some of the church leader or bishop said to him, Oh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, what would the scientists say to that? And the irony here was that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a doctor and a surgeon, prior to pastoring a little church in Aberavon in South Wales, was the only scientifically trained bloke in the room. You know what he said? He said, the scientists, sir, are very fallible. They're very fallible gentlemen indeed. So Ahaz was given a revelation of the living God as his creator. And the Christian church has been entrusted with the revelation of the living God as his creator. That's all I'll say about that. On to the final little section of my sermon now this morning. So Ahaz pretends he's all religious, whereas in actual fact he's already made up his mind what he's going to do. He's just going through the motions here, politely engaging Isaiah and his son. And so Isaiah responds, and he said, verse 13, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, or the young maiden, because the word means both, shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is not a popular Hebrew word, name. Never has been. You'll never find it anywhere else in scripture, other than here and all that follows here. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. God's omniscience coming through again there. Now, remember those seven prophetic events, starting with the fall of Israel, culminating with the millennial reign, which is still future for us. The first part of this prophecy, which is a dual fulfillment prophecy, refers to the fact that a woman in Judah at this time, a young maiden, was about to give birth to a child whom she would call Emmanuel. And by the time that had happened, Israel would be no more. A year or so after these events, the king of Assyria went to Damascus and killed Rezin. There's the smouldering firebrand gone one of them the last king of Israel rose up and killed Pekah they were both gone prophecy fulfilled but the sign was pointing to another sign God with us and if you want to come on a journey these next few weeks which will come on the 12th and the 19th of September when I preach two more sermons on the figure of Emmanuel read Isaiah 7 8, 9, 10, 11 and 12 this week and note the number of times that the phrase God is with us comes through that's all I'll say about that as Forrest Gump would say (laughs) the tragedy of Ahaz's rebellion and stubborn pride comes out at the end of Second Chronicles, verse 28, verses 24 to 25. 
Moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of God, he cut the utensils of the house of God in pieces, and he closed the doors of the house of the Lord, and made altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah he made high places to burn incense to other gods, and provoked the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. Two things there provoked the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. He shut the temple and misappropriated what the temple was there for. That's number one. That was the place where God's people were to worship. And number two, he set up gods with a small g. And remember, an idol is anything that you love trust or fear more than you love, trust or fear the living God which is why we read also in 2nd Chronicles first chapter 28 that's my page also speaking of Ahaz in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king Ahaz. Sometimes we assume that if people get distressed enough, they'll turn to Jesus. It doesn't follow. Because this fellow didn't. And his son, Hezekiah, learned the lessons of these times because what did Hezekiah do when the Rabshakeh stood in the washer's field on the king's highway and sent a letter up to Hezekiah he went into the temple he worshipped the Lord and he spread the letter out before the living God And said, Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Show me what to do. Give me faith and not fear. And of course, that's what the sign of Emmanuel is all about. Do I just press a button? No, Luke's going to press the button which is good as we listen to this piece of music I want us to allow the spirit of God to search our hearts to show us wherever fear might be dwelling to show us wherever what if thinking might be preying on our minds or hearts or spirits but I also want the spirit of God I want us to allow the spirit of God to search our hearts in such a way that the assurance of Emmanuel, God with us, rises up within us. Because we all have our vulnerable places and they're different for each one of us. Which is why each one of us differs in our response to certain things that are going on in the world today. 
But just as Isaiah took his little boy to bridge the gap, to fill the breach in that most vulnerable place, so God sent his son that our vulnerable places might be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea.